0: you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, how to cut down on one of your pet's most annoying habits. Then, fear. What makes us so afraid of things like public speaking, or the monster under the bed, or the creepy guy in the elevator?
1: That is exactly the type of fear that you should trust, and you can figure it out later. But at that point, I would say, get out of that elevator, because that's your collective wisdom telling you, that's it, we're out of here.
0: Also, you live your life based on a lot of assumptions. Maybe it's time to question some of them. Plus, dogs in medicine. Dogs are learning to detect cancer, seizures, even diabetes.
2: For something like diabetes, they can actually detect and alert to when someone is going to have a diabetic low. They can actually do this up to 15 minutes before someone's glucose monitor tells them because they're sniffing in real time.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Admittedly, I am more of a dog person than a cat person. It's not that I dislike cats, I've had cats. I just like dogs better. And we have a really interesting segment coming up in just a bit about how dogs are helping in medicine, how they're detecting disease. And this is really interesting. But I don't want to ignore cat people. So we start today with some interesting information about cats. One of the things I didn't enjoy about having a cat was when the cat would bring home a dead bird or a dead mouse that it had caught hunting outside. Well, there's a new study that found that if you introduce premium commercial food where protein comes mostly from meat, it reduced the number of prey animals that cats brought home by 36%. And also that playing with a cat for 5 to 10 minutes a day resulted in another 25% reduction of cats bringing home prey animals. In this study, they played with the cat by simulating hunting, by moving a feather toy on a string and wand so cats could stalk and chase and pounce. And by letting them do that with toys, they seemed less likely to do that in the wild. So if you have a cat who likes to bring home dead animals, those two things, a meatier diet and playing with the cat more often, could reduce the number of times you get that dead mouse on the doorstep. Ugh. And that's something you should know. Everyone is afraid of something. We all have fears. It's part of being human. Fear serves us well by keeping us safe from danger. But some fears might also keep us from reaching our potential and enjoying life. I'm sure you've noticed that some people are just more cautious and fearful than others, while other people are more thrill-seekers than others. Why is that? Are we programmed that way from the start or not? And if you find that some fears are keeping you from doing important things in life, how do you overcome that? Here with some great insight into how fear works and how to make it work for you is Helen Odesky. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, an anxiety expert, and author of the book Stop Fear From Stopping You, The Art and Science of Becoming Fear Wise. Hi, Helen. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
1: Hi, Mike. Good to be here.
0: So we all have different fears. We all know what fear is. We know what it feels like to feel fear. But from your perspective, what exactly is fear?
1: Fear is our appraisal of danger. So it's the estimate we make when we're faced with a situation or a potential situation about what might happen to us.
0: And obviously fear is a good thing because if we weren't afraid of anything, we'd, we'd all be dead.
1: Absolutely. So fear is life-preserving, and so we want to be able to differentiate between the good fear, the fear that keeps us alive, and the fears that stop us from living the kind of life we'd like to live.
0: And so where do fears come from? Are we, is it evolution? Are we born that way, or is it the result of life experiences, or what?
1: Yeah, so I think it's a part evolution. We have a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is our internal alarm system. And like any alarm, it's prone to false alarms. So it'll go off and make a giant noise inside our head and our bodies about something being dangerous. And when that happens, unless we literally think through it, if it's not an actual life-threatening danger, we have all the sensations of a life-threatening emergency built right in.
0: Okay, so but here's an example. So I I don't like roller coasters because every time I get on a roller coaster, I I think I'm going to die, even though objectively I know I'm not going to die. But I don't enjoy it because of the fear, whereas some people can go on a roller coaster and that same experience makes them happy, which (laughs) which I can't possibly understand.
1: So sometimes the sensations that are produced are very similar to excitement. And if we label it as a welcome sensation, then our emotions tend to follow. So if you go into an amusement park with the idea, this is probably, if it's not going to kill me, it's going to emotionally scar me, you're going to feel that dread and you won't have an enjoyable experience. However, if you go in there, like a lot of teenagers do, saying, I've really been looking forward to it. It's summertime, let's go and they welcome that sensation of their stomach dropping, then you're going to really feel exhilarated at the end of it.
0: And so why are some people one way and other people my way? Is it p- perhaps it's some horrible experience we had or so- something, or, or are we just wired differently? Or, are, I mean, is there a fear? is there a fear spectrum and we're just kind of naturally on it somewhere just because it's who we are?
1: Exactly. There is a spectrum. And it is also related to your life experience. So if you think about it as our constitution, our nature, we are probably wired differently for the degree of risk taking. Some of us are just more cautious by nature. So every time we go into a situation where something might go wrong, we might look at that roller coaster and say, hmm, I wonder what time the last time somebody fell from this thing? Or when was this... Inspected. If our mind is generally wired that way, that's our constitution. However, some people have had negative experiences. Maybe, maybe you went on a roller coaster when you were a little kid and you really hated it, or you got really sick, and so that experience is invoked every time you go, unless you have a series of positive experiences to counteract that.
0: So, that spectrum that you talked about, that that we're all on, and, and, you know, I know some people who are are extremely cautious and other people who are not really cautious, they're more thrill-seekers. Does it tend to apply to different parts of life, or if people are cautious, they're cautious in most things, and thrill-seekers are more thrill-seeking in most things, or is it very individual depending on the situation?
1: This is a really good question. I'll I'll try to tease this out. So fear for some people is a constitutional trait. So they are fearful in most situations. However, I have worked with people who are risk takers in most of their life and may have had an experience of anxiety where in one area of their life, for example, public speaking, they tend to be very cautious and very afraid.
0: So let's talk about the fear of public speaking, because I think we've all heard those stories, the surveys of that fear of public speaking is a bigger fear than the fear of death.
1: And, you know, they repeat these surveys year after year, and it keeps coming back as the number one fear. Why? So a lot of that is what we pin onto public speaking. A lot of us have somehow grown up thinking that this is something that you have to be able to do and execute really well to be liked and to be accepted and to be considered a worthy human being. And so when we can't do it, we start feeling unworthy and less than. And so it's self-protective to say, uh oh, maybe there's a way to get out of this. So I don't have to look less than or feel less than or not be accepted or feel rejected.
0: But it does sometimes seem when you can't get out of it and you have to go through with it, a lot of people can't kind of buck up and do it. They sabotage themselves, which just reinforces the fact that, they're, that they're, they didn't do a good job and now nobody accepts them and they've failed.
1: Yes. And, and I would say a lot of that is because they're in such an anxious state that they're better off taking a few minutes to calm their system down and re-engage. And there's all sorts of tricks that we can talk about to do that. But bottom line is, if you are in the middle of a very high anxiety state, we're talking eight, nine out of 10, it's very hard to get fluent speech out. You're feeling lightheaded. You're feeling like your world's about to crash around you. Uh, and it's very hard to produce something that sounds coherent and interesting and relatable.
0: And so what are some of those tricks of the trade that, that will help people um, deal with that in the moment?
1: So I think the first few minutes are really crucial. I think once people get into it, most of us are able to just go on and talk about the topics we need to talk about. So one of the things that I like to suggest to my clients who are anxious is, hey, start by asking a question. By the time your audience engages with you and you take the 30 seconds to a couple minutes that that takes, you're already engaging with them just by virtue of needing to listen and pay attention to what they're telling you. So you're taking the focus off of you. Uh, The other thing that, that I like to say is, ask people or tell them simple things like how much you want to be there and how happy you are to talk about whatever you're talking to them about, because that's familiar to you. You know, introducing yourself, saying who you are, saying a little bit about yourself is very familiar. It's automated. It doesn't require much scrutiny,
0: right? You know who you are. So that should be pretty easy to talk about.
1: It's pretty easy and it's pretty hard to criticize somebody just by telling you, hey, this is my name. This is what I do. This is where I'm from. So don't launch into the content. Introduce yourself. And then my third thing that I would say is have a bottle of water. Nobody's going to judge you. If in, at some point in the presentation, you say, excuse me, I, I need to get a drink of water. That slows you down, paces you, and lets you get right back in.
0: So I want to talk about that fear that people have. You're walking down the street and somebody's coming at you the other way and you get that feeling, something's not right here. Has it? Has mm-hmm. that been studied and is that a thing?
1: That is a thing and that's actually a, a sign of danger that we teach people to pay attention to. Because if you're walking and all of a sudden you get that spidey sense, That probably is a real danger alert.
0: But what could it be? And you should heed that. What could it possibly be? Just because someone is walking down the street at you and and maybe Mm -hmm. they look disheveled or they look, you know, in in your interpretation, dangerous. It doesn't mean they are.
1: That's true. However, what we know about fear is it's pre-verbal. So if we're looking at using our fear wisely and being fear wise, what we're looking at is saying, you don't need to justify why you're afraid in the moment. It's better to cross the street at that point and figure it out later. It could could be your internal bias, but it could be your life preserving sense saying, get out of there. And I would rather encourage for personal safety that you got out of there and then thought about why that happened versus you being put in danger.
0: Because a lot of us have that internal dialogue of, oh, you're being silly, you, uh, you, you know, grow up, you, you're fine, mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen, and, and probably most of the time nothing would happen, but still, how many times have we all gotten in an elevator with somebody we hesitated to do, or we saw that person on the street, or something made us feel uncomfortable?
1: That is exactly the type of fear that you should trust. And you can figure it out later. But at that point, I would say, get out of that elevator. There was something off. You don't need to know what it is. It's almost as if you trust that more than you do your verbal process at that point, because that's your collective wisdom. That's your intuition telling you, that's it. We're out of here. Fear
0: is our topic today, and I'm speaking with Helen Odesky. She's a clinical psychologist and author of the book "Stop Fear from Stopping You." Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer: stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill – that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount. So you can live Claritin and clear, use as directed. So Helen, talk about the fear of failure because a a lot of times people will use the fear of failure as the reason why they didn't try something because they didn't want to fail. So is the fear of failure a real fear or is it just an excuse to use when you don't want to do something?
1: The fear of failure is really the fear of what's going to happen when something doesn't go the way that we want it to. And it, my experience as a psychologist, it's usually a fear more of how hard we're going to come down on ourselves versus how hard somebody else is going to come down on us. So we might phrase it to ourselves, oh, nobody will let me live this down. But really, it's probably a projection of how we feel and whether we're going to let ourselves live it down.
0: Well, I, it does seem that a lot of times people fear failure. And when they fail, they can't shake it that, that they failed, and they feel horrible that they failed. Is that part of the, the? Is is that what we're trying to avoid?
1: Yeah, we're trying to avoid that because that doesn't feel good. I and mean, we all want to knock it out of the park every time, but we also know that even professional ball players don't usually have a rating of, of anything above fifty percent. So if you're looking at the Michael Jordans and the LeBron James. They don't dunk the basket every time. And so this idea that we have to is this myth that a lot of us walk around with.
0: Let's talk about the fear of rejection. I think that's one that affects a lot of people. It keeps people from, you know, asking someone out on a date. It keeps people from asking for a raise. They, They don't want to get rejected, so they just don't. So what's that fear?
1: that's a basic self-protective thing. So we want to be around people, and this is a good rule of thumb actually, that are accepting of us. So when we're around a lot of negativity or rejection, we tend to recoil. And if we've had those experiences, we tend to get self-protective and avoid those situations. So in order to overcome that, one of the things that i teach is that we have to start looking at rejection as not personal so someone may not be rejecting you particularly if we think about dating they've just met you they don't really know you so whatever they're imposing on you probably has more to say about them than it does about you and so if you can find a way to look at those situations in neutral terms so I'm just looking for somebody where it's a goodness of fit, where I feel comfortable, where they like me and I like them and it feels easy. Then I think you depersonalize it from that self-talk that we get often, which is, oh, they didn't think I was good-looking enough or they didn't think I was smart enough or funny enough or all those those tapes that start playing in our heads.
0: So one of the the interesting fears that, that really is, seems like a, colossal waste of time is the fear of what other people think of you because you can't make everybody happy and why should you try but still you know many of us worry about that we want to be liked we want people to think well of us and and why is that so well i mean it's obvious why it's important but but it, it does seem like kind of a waste of time
1: Uh, It absolutely becomes a waste of time. And it is important because if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, if you weren't accepted, you lost resources. You couldn't get access to food, shelter, or a suitable partner so you could reproduce. So you really had to think about that and make sure that you fit in with the group. Now, a lot of us take it to the extreme and start worrying about what people might think about our hairstyle or our choice of, of job, or even what, what, what type of car we have, right? And you're right, we don't control it. So a lot of it has to do with how we feel about ourselves and whether we accept ourselves we and our choices. News, as we have learned that and we're better off focusing radio. on accepting ourselves if we want to get better with trying to say, okay, it really doesn't much matter what my neighbor thinks about this situation because it's important that I'm okay with it and I am in concert with myself and feel good and accept my choice.
0: One of the things that is interesting to me about fear is that if you look back at all the things you've been afraid of, whether it's, you know, monsters under the bed or, you know, whatever, almost none of them, were worth being too upset about. It's, it's obviously, some would be, but it's it's like mm-hmm. we don't really learn from that. That that life isn't necessarily as fearful as we think it is, but it doesn't ch- typically change our behavior. We still act that way.
1: And so, I would say it brings us to this interesting idea of what do we consider courage? Do we consider courage to be the absence of fear, or do we just consider? fear is part of human condition, notice it when it's helpful, and then decide to live life with it, knowing that it will pass, just like our fear of monsters, under the bed, and that if we act with it, we stand to gain a whole lot more life choices and opportunities.
0: So what does it mean then to be courageous? What do you do with the fear and still act courageous? For example... You're petrified to speak in public, so maybe you don't speak in public. Other people might be petrified to speak in public, but they do it anyway. So what are they doing with their fear? How are they moving it over and allowing themselves to go speak in public?
1: So what you do is you have to acknowledge what it is. So it's not life-threatening, it's a fear. You have to accept that sometimes you're going to feel that and then you have to act with purpose regardless. So if your purpose that day is to tell your company about some bad news and you're understandably afraid of their reaction, then you would do that regardless of whether or not you felt afraid. And that, in my book, would demonstrate courage.
0: So when you have a fear that you've learned, you're afraid to go in the water because something bad happened to you. You're afraid to go on roller coasters because you had a bad experience. When you have a fear that you've learned, is the trick to unlearn it or is the trick to learn something else? I mean, how do you, how do you cope with that fear and, and move on?
1: So we can have an experience where danger learning takes place. And then we can have experience where safety learning takes place. So danger learning is just like it sounds. Is the assessment where we say, "Uh uh-oh, if I go in the water, there's a possibility I might drown. Water equals danger. Safety learning is if I go in the water, I better be around other people because that creates safety. Because if I do have a problem, somebody has a chance to help me out. Safety learning is taking a swimming class. Say, okay, it's really not dangerous to be with your head inside the water. So the more, we can't undo danger learning, but the more safety learning we engage in, we create an equality between those two parts of our brain, and we can overcome some of these prior experiences that we've had. And a lot of people want to unlearn the danger, but it's like learning a language. You're never going to unlearn, if you're an English speaker, you're never going to unlearn English If you learn French, you'll know both, and you'll be able to communicate on par in both, potentially.
0: I don't know if you can answer this or if there's been research that that you know off the top of your head, but that spectrum that we were talking about before, Mm -hmm. is there a a sweet spot where most people are? Are most people kind of fearful? Are most people not very fearful? Do Do you get a sense of that? I mean, obviously, the people you talk to are probably fearful or they wouldn't be coming to see you, so... You probably have a skewed view, but is there research <laughs> yeah. on this?
1: There's research on what's called the big five traits, one of which is openness to new experience, which you can look at as risk-taking. And, and that trait, those big five traits, stay stable over a lifetime. Now, there's a range within them, but we tend to have a spot there.
0: You know, I wonder overall how people feel about their fears. And what I mean by that is, for example, as I said in the beginning, you know, I'm afraid of roller coasters. I don't like them. And I don't have any big desire to change that, that I'm perfectly fine with that fear.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's where, again, brings us to self-acceptance. As long as you can accept that it's okay to be who you are and play to your strength and maybe tweak some skills that you're hoping to expand, you're in pretty good shape.
0: Well, as I listen to you talk, it's so interesting how fears are so important in the sense that they, they keep us safe, they keep us out of harm's way. And yet, if we're not careful, we can let fears kind of keep us from life. And it's important to understand the difference and how to manage those fears. My guest has been Helen Odesky. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and author of the book, Stop Fear From Stopping You, The Art and Science of Becoming Fear Wise. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Helen. I appreciate your time.
1: I appreciate your time as well. Thank you for having me on.
0: Something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a dog person, you're going to enjoy this next conversation. And even if you're not a dog person, you're still going to find it fascinating. As you know, dogs do a lot of things to help people. We have seeing eye dogs, service dogs, police dogs, bomb and drug sniffing dogs. Dogs do a lot. And now there's a reason to believe that they can help us with medicine. Maria Goudavaj is a journalist who's written about military dogs, secret service dogs, and her latest book is called Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. Hi, Maria.
2: Happy to be here.
0: So obviously you are a dog person, so why the interest in how dogs are helping people? Where, where did that start?
2: Well, I've always been um, interested in dogs and working dogs and what they can do. When I was uh, a little kid, my dad used to tell me, he was a soldier in World War II, he was only 18 and he was drafted, and he would tell me about the dogs who worked with his troops, uh, by day saving lives by sniffing out bad things and then at night they would save souls by sniffing out and seeming to know who needed the most help who was really hurting that day and my dad was young and homesick and oftentimes the dog who was working with them would go to him and it would just give him a little taste of normalcy uh, to throw a ball for the dog and just snuggle with the dog and i became a journalist and uh, eventually wrote some books on military dogs and secret service dogs. And I'm a bit of a science geek. And I started hearing about this job that dogs had more and more, which is sniffing out disease. And uh, it's sort of this cutting edge world that I was fascinated with. And I thought, what a great way to bring together my love of working dogs and my fascination with science and the sense of smell.
0: So when did this first begin? When did somebody notice, you know, hey, look what that dog's doing. Maybe it can help us with science-y, medicine-y kind of things. How did all this start?
2: The first dog to appear in scientific literature was a little dog named Baby Boo. She sniffed out her person's cancer on her leg. She had a melanoma. The dog told her in no uncertain terms by biting at her leg that there was something there. And that was the first time in scientific literature. Um, a little flurry of interest after that, but nothing really got going until, nothing serious got going until the early 2000s, when another article appeared in the journal Lancet, and this kicked up more interest and slowly built up. In the early 2000s, people started looking at dogs saying, well, can they, what can they do? Can they detect they can detect cancer can can we have them can we figure out these freelance dogs seems to be tell seem to be telling their people you've got cancer there are all these anecdotes about people who say their dogs told them so science started looking into it in a much more rigorous way and that would be you know, about 15 years ago up to 20 years ago and for all kinds of diseases and it's just slowly progressed and now it's really taking off just in the last few years more universities and really great training centers are getting involved in in very uh, rigorous scientific work with dogs who are actually really happy to do the kind of work we're asking them to do
0: and so what is it that dogs are doing? Dogs smell a lot of things. That's kind of what they're known for. How are they dif- differentiating disease and how do they know and how do they then say, "Hey, this is cancer you've got?" And how does what's going on?
2: Okay. So dogs have to be specifically trained for the disease we're asking them to sniff, just as bomb dogs have to be trained on the explosive scents and narcotic dogs. We can't just say to a dog, can you just sniff out whatever is going on with the person for something like diabetes? They can sniff out, they can actually detect and alert to when someone is going to have a diabetic low, for instance. And that's super important. They can actually do this up to 15 minutes before someone's glucose monitor tells them because they're sniffing this drop in real time. Now, we don't know, scientists don't know What they're sniffing in any of these cases, there are these volatile organic compounds, which are chemical substances released into the air. Scientists are trying to figure out what makes up the scent of someone going into a diabetic low or certain cancers that dogs are being asked to smell in laboratories. But how they do it, let's just talk about diabetes, is they take samples from lots and lots of people. uh, in diabetic lows, and then they'll take samples, let's say sweat samples from the back of your neck. You know, right now they could rub the back of your neck with a cloth and put that in the freezer. You'd be a control. Um, I did this actually, and um, other people with diabetes would be tested while they're in a diabetic low, and they would have these different things. The dogs will be in um, in a little setting where they are asked. Okay, well, here, here are these little things. They're they're hidden in these ports and they'll have the dog sniff each port. And if a dog has any kind of change of behavior at all with the one that we want them, in this case, the diabetic low, they get a reward. They get a treat, a bounce of a ball, and the dog learns that, oh, this scent is different. And eventually, they come to be able to establish over many, many samples that this is what they're being asked to sniff. So a dog can't detect all kinds of diseases. Uh, some dogs have been asked to detect a few different ones, but they're really, really trained to detect one thing. They're specialists, just like doctors are. So uh, those who detect cancer are given different types of cancer. They're not given tumors, they're, they're um, given samples of blood or urine or saliva, exhaled breath, and they're they need a lot of different samples because otherwise, dogs cheat. Dogs want the easy way to get their treat, their reward. So they'll memorize a person. They'll say, oh, that's Fred. Oh yeah, Fred. Fred, he's the one I always get a reward for, instead of the smell of cancer. And so scientists are working to find out what the chemical signatures of all these diseases are. And we're hoping that dogs will be able to tell people what this is. It's just a matter of working back and forth.
0: So, because you had started this by saying there was this one dog that smelled melanoma or some cancer on it with no training and somehow alerted to the fact that there's something wrong here. But that's not what really happens. What really is going on is they're being very specifically trained.
2: Yeah. So, I should clarify some dogs are, like, maybe someone who's listening, their pet dog has been nudging a certain spot on their body. I mean, dogs are going to nudge no matter what, so people shouldn't get worried about that. But sometimes um, dogs will really focus on a part of the body. A woman who founded the organization Medical Detection Dogs in England, it's a fantastic organization, uh, her dog had been insistent pressing on her chest uh, all the time, nudging her, even pawing at her, and she finally got checked, she had breast cancer. And so that is, it is rare, but some dogs can tell that something is off, and maybe they can even sniff where it is, and they just may be trying to tell you what's going on. But the dogs who are used in scientific settings are trained really, really specifically, and the training is um, always getting better, because we're learning that dogs dogs are very specific, and they're sniffing out things like malaria. They're trying to find out from socks of children in two schools in the Gambia which children have malaria, which children don't. And the and the researchers found that they actually had to train the dogs um, again because the dogs were learning to the schools from which. The children were donating socks, so the school scent was heavier than the malaria scent. So there's all kinds. There are all kinds of factors that have to be considered.
0: And why are we doing this if you can just do a medical test? We just do an X-ray or or something. Why why are we having dogs do this?
2: There are all kinds of cancers that don't have good early detection. For instance, ovarian cancer. I. Unfortunately, have this in my family. My mom died of ovarian cancer and, and several aunts have perished from this And so there's nothing there's no gold standard for ovarian cancer as far as early testing before Symptoms there the symptoms are so quiet and dogs at the University of Pennsylvania have been found have found uh, ovarian cancer as early as stage one in samples of plasma from women with ovarian cancer and this is uh, I was there one day when they're actually sniffing out a, the sample of plasma from one drop of plasma. It was actually a drop mixed with a drop of saline, so it was a half a drop of plasma, and the dogs were alerting to that. So it's it's amazing what they can detect when they're really well trained. And the idea isn't that dogs will be in your doctor's back office sniffing out your samples. The idea is that dogs are going to one day lead to technology called an e-nose, for lack of a better term. An e-nose will help rapidly, inexpensively, and at very early stages detect cancers.
0: But isn't there just always a chance that, you know, the dog's just not into it today? It's not feeling it, having a bad day. And so how accurate can this be if we have to rely on a dog that may or may not just be wanting to do it today?
2: So far, dogs have not been asked to diagnose people. It's all in, it's it's really proof of concept right now.
0: Do certain types of dogs seem to be better at this than others?
2: Actually, that's a great question because there have been, typically you'll see Labrador retrievers, German shepherds, um, dogs who are often used in all kinds of as working dogs in the military and police dogs and guide dogs. But it turns out that a lot of different dogs are really good at this. I actually saw a dog detecting Parkinson's disease up in Washington State recently. And this dog is a Pomeranian and she wears a tutu to work when she goes in. She gets turkey as her reward. And um, so what the dog really needs, it's not the breed so much as a focus. They need to be a pretty focused dog and more than that, they want—they have to want to work for a reward. So if the dog really wants food, kibble, a uh, treat, a toy, that's the key. It's their paycheck. So a dog gets these paychecks, and they have to be really reward-driven to do this work. If a dog's like, whatever, food, toys, I just want to sit around the, the fireplace, they're not going to make a great detection dog.
0: How hard is it to train a dog to do this?
2: To train a dog well actually is is difficult. It can take many months for a dog uh, daily uh, to to come in. And, and these dogs, by the way, I don't want people to picture beagles locked in cages in laboratories. These dogs are generally dogs who come in, they're volunteered by their people. They come in for a day or a couple of hours to a university or a training center. And um, they work, They, as I was saying, they, they have to get to know the scent and they have to really make sure they're on that scent directly. And it can take, it can take months. And then dogs can be fooled by sometimes they're sniffing out the person that the the skin that falls off. We we shed, you know, so much skin, so many skin cells every second. Some dogs have found been found to alert to the person who put the sample together. So they have to be really careful so the dogs aren't sniffing out the wrong things. It's really a matter of us learning what we need to do because the dogs will sniff out and tell us about what we ask them to do.
0: And so what's the future timeline of this? I mean, how, uh, when does this actually become really, really practical and useful if ever?
2: Some people guardedly optimistically are saying it could be as soon as five years, which I would love You know, with, with my skin in the game uh, of ovarian cancer. Uh, others don't dare have a timeline. And that's that timeline is for, Um, not necessarily everyone being able to have access to this through their doctors, but through the initial testing of these kinds of e-noses for people.
0: So I know I've heard before, and I imagine many people have, this idea that there's been some research, dogs can maybe smell cancer. There have been anecdotal stories in the news about that. But how else are dogs involved in human medicine?
2: Oh, Many ways. In fact, the dogs are trained, we talked about diabetes already. The dogs are trained on illnesses like seizure disorders. Until recently, researchers thought, no, no, people who have seizures don't don't have a scent. There's no change of scent. Dogs, dogs, admittedly, even to them, seem to alert, get nervous before their people would have a seizure And they thought it was, they were detecting something going on with the brain, some change of heartbeat or something, but recently there has been a sense uh, um, associated with pre-seizures and also dogs have been trained on the scent of someone in seizures and yes, dogs can smell seizures. Again, we don't know what they're smelling, but their sense of smell is so incredibly good.
0: So it really seems like, in terms of training dogs to smell things, really the sky's the limit.
2: As we learn more about what these dogs can do, they're they're being used more and more different ways. There are people who have uh, who faint, who, who lose consciousness out of nowhere. There is a, a woman in um, in England who went to meet the Queen, and she had this. It, she was part of the medical detection dogs contingency and the, the queen and uh, and Camilla and others are, are big fans of these, these doctor dogs. And so there was a demonstration and this woman was there with her dog and her dog started alerting to her during the demonstration at the Buckingham Palace stables, horse stables. And, and this woman was crestfallen because she wanted to be there while the queen was watching the dogs do what they did. But she went, she lay down, she lost consciousness. She came back. She was shaky and typically, uh, just in in a really bad state afterward. But at least she was not fainting in front of the queen, and uh, and she actually got to meet the queen after. and And her dog, being a dog, because these dogs save lives, and they're amazing in so many ways. But at the end of the day, they're dogs. This dog snorted his nose into the queen's purse while they were standing there. So so the dogs get to be dogs. They. That's The thing about these dogs, even when they're doing this life saving work at home, they always get to cut loose and just be dogs, and that's that's the beauty of it. Wow,
0: well, it's pretty interesting. You know, you kind of wonder why no one's no one has dove into this before. I mean, why did it take till now before somebody said, Hey, maybe dogs could play a role here?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and and actually, in so many things, because dogs are now. Being asked to sniff for rare or endangered species, they're they're asked to um, sniff out archaeological finds where people people can't find things that easily, but dogs are able to do it. So I think as we're realizing just what dogs can do, uh, they're going to be getting more and more of these jobs. And dogs love to work; they love to have a job. In fact, um, I when I when I started doing research uh, about a decade ago on military dogs. Um, I, I decided my dog needs a job. And so I, I just, not a real job, but I, I let him sniff for, for treats around the house. And uh, I have certain things that placed in certain places, and he has to find them. So dogs dogs love the challenge of of being able to, of you know, finding their food, being able to work for a living.
0: I'm curious, since you wrote the, the book about Secret Service dogs, because I, I think most people don't think of, when I think of the Secret Service, I don't, see a dog nearby that's just guys in suits and sunglasses. Uh, what, What are Secret Service dogs typically used for?
2: Yeah, well, if you go to the White House, there are dogs you will see in front of the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue, and they are floppy ear dogs. They call them friendly dogs, and they're there to sniff for people with explosives. So they look They're not the kind of dogs like Belgian Malinois or German Shepherds with the pointy ears, where people will kind of go around them to to get away from them. They're just these affable, friendly dogs, and but they do a really serious job, and they're they're able to track explosives to track people with explosives, and so that's a job that's actually in the public eye, and a lot of people see. There's a character named Roddy who's out there, and and he, I mean, they're just they're all characters who work there. You have to be able to. To really brave the crowds and and be tough about it and friendly at the same time, there are dogs who are very close to the White House. You you will see with their guys in dark glasses, and they are they're the dogs. Uh, they're typically Bel- Belgian Malinois, and Belgian Malinois are like smaller, more life. Um, Really badass German Shepherds, and they're there uh, to protect the White House. So they're closer to the White House. They're with um, they're with the guys who will tackle anyone who tries to get close to the White House. And then, if you visit the White House, there are dogs you won't see who are there to to sniff you as you go in. So there's a room, and you go into this one room as you're being screened, and you're asked to stand on these two little yellow footprints. And, um, and then you go and a dog has just sniffed you and uh, giving you the thumbs up that you don't have an explosive and you can continue. And everywhere the president goes, there's a dog. There are dogs to screen everywhere. They're so well-trained and the dogs of the Secret Service have absolute specialties. They either sniff for bombs or they, you know, they go after bad guys. And um, in the military, a lot of dogs do both, but in the Secret Service, because they're protecting the highest office in the world, they're specialists. And what about a
0: really good story about how the dog saved the day?
2: Back in, oh, I don't remember the year right now, but um, 2014, I think, uh, people, people are always trying to jump the White House fence for one reason or another. And um, a dog named, one night, one evening, uh, someone got over the fence and was not stopping no matter what and there are a lot of people guarding the white house and he wasn't stopping and everyone was you know trying to get him to stop and just like a couple of weeks before that someone had gotten into the white house and there was egg on the face of the secret service there for a while um but uh, a dog named hurricane a black belgian malinois gorgeous dog was released by his handler and um the dog tried to apprehend him, you know, grabbed, grabbed hold of the guy. And uh, the the man started beating on the dog, kicking him, punching him. The dog wouldn't go, wouldn't let go. He was, he, he was there. Uh, His handler tears up, this big tough guy tears up when he thinks about what his dog, he said, my dog would have given his all to hang on to that guy and, and they were able to apprehend him and, and no harm was done. Uh, but Hurricane was a hero. They, they really needed a hero at that time and he's actually, um, I'm still in touch, Hurricane is happily retired now and he, he didn't suffer um, any bad wounds. He uh, he really wanted to keep working that night but they took him to the vet and made sure he was okay. He just had some contusions.
0: Well, I love I love these kind of conversations being the dog person that I am. But it's also just from a scientific point of view, just amazing the potential that these dogs have in helping in medicine. Maria Goudavage has been my guest. She's a journalist, and the name of her book is Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Maria. Thanks for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) You know, it's interesting when you think about it that so much of how we live our life is based on assumptions. We just assume so many things. But when you question your assumptions, it's really amazing how many great ideas you can come up with. According to Joel Saltzman, who's author of a book called Shake That Brain, sometimes those great ideas translate into money. For example, we assume that the way we typically board an airplane is the most efficient. First the people seated in the back of the plane get on, then the people in the middle, then the people in the front. Well, somebody questioned that assumption, and it turns out to be false. First, boarding people seated at the window seats, then middle seats, and then aisle seats is faster. And there is some evidence now that just letting people board randomly is actually more efficient. And the payoff is that planes can board and take off faster. We assume that combination locks have to be number-based, but says who? One man has marketed a whole line of combination locks with letters, so you can use words as the combination, and he's captured a good portion of the market. We assume that a do not disturb sign should say do not disturb, but no it doesn't. The Hard Rock Hotel had signs that didn't say do not disturb. They said, I hear you knocking, but you can't come in which are lyrics from the Dave Edmonds 1970 hit song. The payoff is that it's different, it's clever, people remember it, they talk about it, and it generates buzz, just like we're talking about it right now. And that is something you should know. If you heard an advertiser in this podcast and you thought, that sounds interesting, all the websites and promo codes, they're all in the show notes for this episode.